0: Spirit Catholic Radio, you're on Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and Chris McGregor. Today, joined again by Mike Aquilina, author of The Mass of the Early Christians, who people have been devouring and loving here. Also, uh, three other books on the early church, all published by our Sunday visitor. He is vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, which you can visit at www.salvationhistory.com. And also, along with uh, Scott Hahn, co-hosted several series on the EWTN, Eternal Word Television Network, and writes extensively on Catholic doctrine in History and Devotion. Mike, welcome.
1: Well, thank you for so many
0: so
2: many kind words.
0: Well, we just heap the accolades and then we get into the catechesis. And then
2: we make you work. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm here to work.
0: I'm ready. All right. Today we're going to talk about, depending on how you like to pronounce his name, St. Augustine or St. Augustine.
1: Well, it's tomato or tomato. I'd say people are about divided evenly between those who pronounce it one way and those who pronounce it the other way.
0: Well, the one thing, Mike, that no one can argue with is the fact that certainly he is one of the pivotal figures in the history of the world.
1: Well, that's for sure, and Pope Pius XI made that point. You know, he he, he talked about him as as one of the handful of men, really, who have profoundly influenced history. If you look at it, he was able to cast the terms in which subsequent governments would think of themselves and Mm -hmm. think of their rule. He was... He was able to, uh, to influence the, the development of literary forms, like the autobiography, mm-hmm. uh, forever after he wrote his Confessions. Augustine's influence has been ranging, and it, it, it covers a lot of different fields. It's not only among Christians, but it is, it is in the world, as you say.
2: So as a father of the Church, you could probably say he was a big daddy.
1: <laughs> he was. He was one of the great fathers of the Western Church. And, and certainly, uh, when you look at it, just the citations... He is the most cited Christian figure outside the Bible. Right. Wow. Uh, he's, he, he's number one in the catechism of the Catholic Church. You know, some people might think it would be St. Thomas Aquinas or a modern figure, but it's, it's Augustine. It's Augustine in the catechism, it's Augustine in the councils of the Church. He's the most frequently cited father of the Church, the most frequently cited saint.
2: Set the place for us. It's, it's 354, the year of his birth. What's well, the world like?
1: What's the world like? Well, uh, the world is in, is in uh, great turmoil because it's not that long since the empire um, has accepted Christianity. There's still a memory of persecution about, but by the time Augustine comes of age, it, it's a very dim memory. The mm-hmm. old folks can, can think back to those days, but by now the, the, the empire has pretty much settled into a Christian groove. There was a little bit of a hiccup at, at the time of uh, Julian the Apostate. He tried to restore paganism, but it didn't last very long, and it didn't succeed at all. So Christianity is feeling pretty triumphant. It's settling in in the empire, and it's becoming the established religion, the established church. Back in the old days, if you were ordained a priest or made a bishop, you were likely to be martyred for, for your trouble. But now it's actually become a sign of prestige, a sign of honor, and uh, and even a certain amount of of affluence to be named to be ordained a priest or or made a bishop. So we find in Augustine's life, he begins to notice kind of a two-tiered spirituality settling in at the parish level. He doesn't like it, but he sees, for the first time in history, you have a a great mass of slacker Christians who are not taking their spirituality very seriously.
2: Imagine that. Yeah, how about that? Yeah,
1: Catholics in name only, we we might say today, or cafeteria Catholics. Augustine is the first one to notice this phenomenon once Christians get comfortable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were certainly experiencing their, their first sense of great comfort in Augustine's life, during Augustine's
2: lifetime. Now he is not on the European continent,
1: no, he grew up in in, uh, in, in Africa. He, he went to school in Carthage, which was the big city in Africa, North mm-hmm. Africa. It was a you know a, a great center of trade and, and government in the Roman Empire in that part of the world. Uh, it was a great intellectual center. Uh, many of the fathers of the Church hailed from that area, and some of the most influential fathers of the Church, like Tertullian and St. Cyprian in the early years. Well, the North African Church was... You know, had that kind of heritage behind it, and that's, that's what Augustine grew up in. He grew up in a Christian home. His mother's name was Monica, St. Monica, mm-hmm. you and me, and she raised him to be a Christian. He wasn't baptized as a child. He was raised in a Christian home. The custom at that time was to, was to be baptized as an adult. Right. And it wasn't until he went to school that he began, began to doubt his Christian faith and fall away from it, actually, for a time.
0: And, Mike, let's talk a little bit about his parents. Would it be safe to say they were almost polar opposites?
1: Yeah, his father, Patricius, or, uh, or P- Patrick, I suppose, his father was not a Christian, really. He was an immoral man. He was an adulterer. Uh, he could be a rough man, and uh, he was certainly coarse in his, uh, in his manners. He was a successful man. He was a uh, businessman, and he wanted the best for his son. He wanted the mm-hmm. best education, and he wanted his son to succeed in life. But he wasn't that concerned, for example, for his son's purity, uh, right. and and just as as Patricius was living an immoral life, he encouraged his son in that direction.
0: Right, and and that actually happened while he was in Carthage.
1: Yes, well, uh, Augustine began to to get into trouble uh, when he was a young boy. Even uh, he, he the, one of the pivotal scenes in his Confessions, his autobiography, is uh, is a scene where where he and his buddies steal pears from the neighbor's tree, and the pears didn't even taste that good. But he talks about, about the thrill of rebellion, about the, the, that sense of the thrill of the sin of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he examines his motivations for stealing the pears for page after page after page, and it really is uh, kind of a deep glimpse, or not a glimpse, it's a, it's a study of one choice in a man's life, as emblematic of all the other choices in his life, it's a an examination about of, uh, of why we choose to sin, mm-hmm. and it really became a very influential passage uh, in literature because uh, it's it's one of the the early examples of introspection at such great, great length, because, he, as I said, it goes on for pages and pages and pages in his confessions. But he, he that's one example of his getting into trouble. He ran around with a bunch of troublemakers when he was a young kid, and when he went to Carthage, he got into a different kind of trouble. He did fool around, and he was involved in a lot of impurity, fornication and that sort of thing, But he um, and he took up with the mistress, and as far as we can tell, he was true to her once he took up with her. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's odd that he lived with her for so long, decades, and we we don't know her name. Hmm.
2: Uh, he never mentioned it in the Confessions.
1: Right, right. It's like he had a certain respect for her, because he didn't treat her the way she should have been treated, and he had a certain respect for her memory, I think. Mm-hmm. He didn't love her.
0: And, and they had a son, didn't they? They
1: did. They named him Adeodatus, a uh, gift, gift to God. Uh, he grew up with Augustine. He died very young. He died when he was uh, he was a young adult. Hmm. He,
2: uh, and Augustine was only 17, when he became a father.
1: Yes. But, but by then, that was, that was a normal course of events. It was, uh, sure. people didn't live as long as they do today, so he was of age, I guess, to become a parent. But uh, he was in school at the time, and he was not living a Christian life. And I'm not sure which comes first. Often our morals lead to bad faith, and sometimes our bad faith leads to bad morals.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: But Augustine began to, to doubt the Christian religion, he he, uh, he began to think like a materialist, and he, he would only believe what he could see, and uh, he was really troubled by the problem of evil, because he could see the problem of evil everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Christians he approached, I suppose, didn't give him the answers he wanted, so he began to be attracted by, by this kind of New Age religion that was going on at the time, which was kind of a mishmash of, of all the world religions. It was mm-hmm. called Manichaeism. It was named after its founder, Man- Mani. But it involved Persian religions and Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism all kind of put in a pot and stirred up. Mm-hmm. But it looked at all of uh, reality as struggle between f- the force of light, which is God, and the force of darkness. And these, this struggle just goes on and on and on. It's 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 a kind of dualism. It also took a very dim view of the created world, because the created world was made by the dark side in order to trap the children of light to their mm-hmm. souls. So uh, 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 for Augustine, this was answering the problem of evil. Okay, I see now, I'm this child of light who just got trapped in this uh, this material world of darkness. Well, he was attracted by Manichaeanism, but he never really gave into it. He was never initiated into it. He hung around it for a long time and was influenced by it uh, for a time. But he never, he never went all the way in. And so, a lot of people say he never really left the Christian faith. He just um, <laughs> dawdled in the vestibule for a long time
2: right. and
0: stood
1: back.
2: Yeah, Manichaeism. It, am I wrong, uh, Mike? It looks a lot like Gnosticism in some ways.
1: Yes, I'd say it's a species of Gnosticism. It, it, it was influenced by the, the Gnostic currents that were running everywhere through the ancient world. This was one, this was one man's take on it, Mani, mm-hmm. and it was probably the most um, successful in organizing its forces and organizing its doctrine and in evangelizing the ancient world. It, made, it had more of an impact than any of the other species of Gnosticism that, that, that we find evidence of.
2: Where we have Augustine now, he is a learned man who becomes a professor of rhetoric.
1: Oh, very successful in his field. And he, he kind of outgrows uh, the, the North Af- African province, and he gets a job in Rome. He wants to go to the big city, and he wants to make it in the big city.
2: So it's like going to New York City.
1: Right, or, or getting getting a teaching post at Harvard. Uh, there you uh, go. He, he made it in his field as, as a professor of rhetoric, and he was renowned. All over the all over the empire, uh, he had won a, a a great poetry award when he was a young man. So people knew his name, mm-hmm. and he had gained a certain fame. But he was already beginning to feel just a certain dis, dissatisfaction with life. He he just felt that there there had to be more than this. He he achieved everything he wanted. He had satisfied every urge. He had uh, reached all of his ambitions, and and yet he he wasn't satisfied. And then he got to Rome and. And uh, his students didn't want to be there in class. You know, they were mm-hmm. just there to get their diploma or whatever, or there because their parents made them go, or uh, all, all the usual complaints of a teacher. Right. And he couldn't get them to pay their bills. He had this phenomenon of students sticking around for the semester and then dropping out on the last day, so, so they weren't around to pay their bills. So he, he had a lot of trouble with it. He eventually made his way to Milan, where there was a great bishop, named Ambrose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Ambrose was himself a very successful man. He had been more or less governor of the most important province of, in the empire, strategically. Uh-huh. Once he was governor in that area there in Milan, we talked on his feast day, I think. He was he was uh, recruited to be bishop
2: That's <laughs> of right.
1: the place, and, and he, uh, he got the grand slam of sacraments. Ambrose was a great preacher and a great thinker like Augustine and Augustine was in awe of him and uh, Augustine's mother Monica had kind of followed him even though he didn't want her to mm-hmm. he followed him from Africa to to Rome to Milan and uh, and she was also a great admirer of Ambrose and and he was something of a spiritual director to Monica well, Augustine would listen to, to this man preach, and he would just be amazed, and he was so impressed by the singing in the cathedral at Milan, and, and, and Ambrose had a profound influence on all of these things. So Augustine began to make appointments to talk to Ambrose, and uh, what always impressed him about Ambrose is that Ambrose was attentive to him. Even though he was the busiest man on the planet, he, he was very attentive to Augustine. He listened to him, mm-hmm. and he gave him good advice, and he gave him time. And he gave him real friendship. Wow. And, and that so impressed Augustine that it, it really had more of an impact than all the arguments he had been hearing for Christianity for for all those years. Mm-hmm. And it was under the influence of, of Ambrose that he made the decision, the final decision, to to be initiated into the, the Christian mysteries, to, um, to be baptized, and to take his Christian life seriously. So that was there in, in Milan where he was, he was living with his mother, his son, his, his concubine, and some friends.
2: It's amazing to me that sometimes it's, it's not the great arguments that can convert someone, but it's encountering Christ, and it's, I mean, just listening to them, and, and being Christ to them, and giving them time. and Those are the types of things that touch people's hearts.
1: That's right, and, and Ambrose did give him some good advice. It wasn't so much argumentative, but he gave him some pointers on how to read Scripture, because Augustine had never been able to, to read the scriptures. He was scandalized by the Old Testament, for mm-hmm. example, and he, he thought, this is, this is silly, I'm not going to read this. But then Ambrose taught him, with just a few sentences, how to approach the Old Testament, how to approach the scriptures, and it changed him. It changed him. He was able to go into those and read them fruitfully after that.
2: And then he would eventually play a very active role in defining the canon of the New Testament.
1: Oh, sure, uh, because there, there were two local synods in, um, in, in Carthage and in, in Hippo, where Augustine eventually became bishop. And Augustine was very influential at those synods because there were some controversies at the time over what could be read in the liturgy. And that's how the Christian Church settled the canon, settled the question of the canon. There wasn't a whole lot of question by then, but that's, that's really how the, the Church settled the question of, of what's in the canon and what's out. And, and they say that it was because of Augustine's influence that we have books like uh, the Letter to the Hebrews and the Book of Revelation and uh, Second Peter, because a lot of people opposed those books on various grounds. They thought mm-hmm. they might be troublesome to people, or, or, or some people doubted their, their apostolic origin. But Augustine did, did the homework, did the scholarship, and, uh, and demonstrated that these things were indeed of apostolic origin and that um, they were theologically sound.
2: As you recount in his life in The Fathers of the Church, an introduction to the first Christian teachers, you talk about when Augustine did return to the faith of his childhood in 387. Uh, he found peace, but there was also a great deal of sadness after the first couple years of returning yes
1: because because he was, he had to find a direction in life mm-hmm. um, you know he had been living a certain way and now what do you do what was good is that he had good christian companionship some of his friends and his son had been initiated when he was mm-hmm. and they lived in a semi monastic atmosphere where they had these where they studied texts and they had these conversations these philosophical conversations that could continue over days and he recorded some of them in his dialogues and uh, and you can see a fascinating thing the the continuing influence of his mother monica on his life mm-hmm. she she must have been such a strong figure and such such a penetrating intellect even though she was probably illiterate wow and yet she could carry on these great theological conversations with her son her her hyper-educated son and all of his hyper-educated friends. Mm-hmm. She could she could discuss the scriptures, and usually she's the one who comes off as the most wise person at the table. In his um, his dialogues, she was a remarkable woman. It, it wasn't really customary for women to be literate at the time. They might have kind of a um, functional literacy, so that they could make grocery lists and that sort of thing. But it wasn't customary to read the scriptures. But she used to she used to go to funerals. So that she could hear the scriptures proclaimed, so so she would try to go to mass once a day, and then attend any funerals that were going on that day, so that she would hear the scriptures proclaimed again. Wow! And this was her way of getting her scriptural fix several times a day. It, Amazing! It's,
2: uh, you got to uh, honor that. Yes, yes. Well, and he does too in his confessions, as you point out. It's probably the ancient world's most famous eulogy.
1: Oh, his uh, his account of his last last meeting with his mother. They they decided the whole group of them decided that they were going to go back to africa and so they were on their way and at ostia his mother monica fell ill and they had this last dialogue about heaven Mm. which he records in his confessions and i include in my book the fathers of the church and it's a beautiful beautiful dialogue between mother and son and you could see that she's still teaching him you know as an adult she's she's still teaching her little boy even though he's the greatest theologian uh, maybe whoever walked the earth. And, uh, and, and, uh, and she's bringing him up in the faith still. What's, uh, what's, what's gorgeous in Catholics, Catholics will appreciate it, is that, that his last re- her last request to him is that he remember her at Mass. Mm. Wow. Remember her yeah. when he's at the altar, uh, because he would be ordained uh, as a priest, and, and he would be saying Mass. So she wanted to make sure that someone would say Mass for her soul.
2: Oh that's so tender. Yep. Yes. Would you say that Saint Augustine was one of the original moral theologians?
1: Well that's the amazing thing. He he was a moral theologian, he was a dogmatic theologian, he he was he was everything. His he, he did a great work of political philosophy, if you look you can look at the city of God that way. But you know, he was he was interested in the range of Christian thought. He did write an important work of, on morals. I include a large chunk of it in my book, "The Fathers of the Church, mm-hmm. where he really takes people from first principles on through you know the fine points of Christian ethics. He also um, gave us very early and, and profound consideration of Christian marriage and, and sexual morality. You know he, he, had, um, he had sinned so grievously in this area. But he also had such a fine appreciation of the true good of the sexual relationship Mm -hmm. in a marriage, and he wrote very movingly of that. He did a lot of work in moral theology. He did a lot of work in in, in dogma. Um, He wrote uh, the definitive early work on the Trinity, his De Trinitate. He wrote, uh, as as I said before, The City of God. He wrote against many, many heresies, uh, especially those that were plaguing the African Church. And he was able to bring kind of a decisive end to a number of heresies, and reconcile their members uh, to the Catholic Church.
0: Right, and even a couple of schisms, too, for them. Yes, in yes. Yeah.
1: In, in North Africa, he, he really brought about a great unity in the Church right before, uh, unfortunately, disorder took over the, um, that part of the empire, mm-hmm. and the civil government broke down.
2: Amazing. How did death find him?
1: Well, he was certainly prepared, and, uh, and from what we know of his death, he was working right up to the end. He was dictating at the, at the on the day of his death. He was dictating a letter to uh, to to his clergy on their own lives, on, on their discipline. Mm. And how they should order their lives. They were facing a great threat at the time because uh, their city was under siege by the barbarians, and it seemed inevitable that uh, they were going to be on the losing end of this battle. That. The barbarians were going to take over, mm-hmm. and it was going to be the fall not only of Carthage, not only of Hippo, not only of um, of their little corner of the world, but of the empire. It was only a matter of time at this point, mm-hmm. and Augustine could see that coming. and um, And so he he wrote the documents that were going to help the the church stay its course and think very clearly uh, through all the Middle Ages, and uh, they continue to be illuminating for us today.
0: Absolutely. Marvelous, marvelous man, Saint Augustine, and Mike. We want to thank you very much for spending time. We've battled the clock here. We could go on for hours.
1: Well, I know. I feel like we've <laughs> we 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 haven't even started talking about Augustine yet. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we'll just consider this the Augustine teasing kind of interview. So. I, I hope so. <laughs>
2: because that is the beauty of the Father. I'm going to say the name of the book again, everybody, The Fathers of the Church, An Introduction to the First Christian Teachers. Because what you do in that, Mike, is you give everybody a real solid foundation on the on each father, and then you direct them where to go to deepen their understanding, To and you encourage them, right. read them yourselves. Yep. Get to know them.
1: Well, Well, thank you so much for those kind words. The new edition of the book, and it's an expanded edition, it has more writings of the fathers and more writings of more fathers. So that, get that from my blog, fathersofthechurch.com.
0: More fathers, more often. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, Mike, again, thank you so much. We deeply appreciate your coming on and sharing with us and our audience here.
1: I appreciate the invitation. Thank you.